Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham. Great to see you all in worship. Um, hey, before we get going with the sermon this morning, we have a special guest with us that I do want to recognize. Uh, you may know this. We have a missions commission here at Grantham, and we uh, have been supporting three different missionary families. Uh, one of them came off the mission field with the Brethren of Christ uh, U.S. World Missions, and so we were looking for someone else to support. And they're actually with us here this morning. Would the Medina family please stand up, just be recognized. Would you give them a hand? Great, so, so glad to have you with us. Uh, Yosuel and, and Jackie and their children, Joshua, Rebecca, and Elizabeth, are serving in Ecuador, a very challenging place. And an opportunity to chat with uh, him just a little bit before the service about their calling into ministry and how God has just been at work in their life. It's just really exciting to be reminded that the Spirit is at work among His people and, and, and sending people into hard places. Amen? Amen. Welcome. We're glad that you're, you're with us. Well, we are nearing the end of our 12-week summer series, Saints and Sinners. In this series, we've been looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken. And through their stories, we've seen how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our doubts, our sins, and personal struggles. But of course, what the Lord needs from us in order to bless us and graciously work us into his redemptive story is for us to give him our heart. To give him our heart, to trust him with our life. And that has been the invitation each week as we've talked about these biblical characters. So far in our series, we reflected on the stories of 10 men and women from both the Old and the New Testaments. And this morning is number 11, the Apostle Thomas. Thomas, in a sermon entitled, Doubting but Believing in God. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we open up our hearts to you now. We open up our hearts and our minds. We want to hear a word from you, Lord. Set us free. Give us a fresh experience and encounter with you. Lord, help us to think critically, but not to be critical. Lord, remove any obstacles that stand in the way from us hearing a word from you and being changed. We ask these things in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen, amen. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, we first hear about Thomas, this disciple of Jesus. It says in Mark, chapter 3, verse 13 through 19, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Now, Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the Gospels. We believe that Mark probably wrote first. And so he doesn't give us a lot of details that, say, Matthew and Luke would give us. So he just sums up all of the, in, the encounters of the disciples and Jesus calling the disciples into one paragraph here. He says he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. We, we heard about Simon Peter last week. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the nickname uh, sons of thunder. Have you noticed that Jesus likes giving nicknames? Rock to Peter, or Rocky, <laughs> and the sons of thunder, right? Remember they wanted to, to smite the Samaritan village for not receiving Jesus. Um, and then we're going to get one for Thomas as well. But there's Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You know, we don't know a lot about Thomas. Uh, uh, if you've been watching the Chosen TV series, 
they fill in a lot of the gaps with, with lots of the disciples. And I, first off, I want to tell you, I think that's okay. I think it's okay. I mean, clearly if there was something that's contradicting what's in the scriptures, well, we have a problem with that. But to fill in the, the blanks and to humanize these characters. Remember, these are ancient biographies, the Gospels are. They're not giving us the kinds of details that we always want. They're shaping their narratives in a way to address pastoral concerns that the early church was going through. So I think that's okay to take a little creative license and do this. So in The Chosen, they have Thomas first meeting Jesus at the wedding of Cana. And right away, you see that Thomas is a guy who needs evidence. And we don't really know if that's the truth. I mean, Thomas, I think, and I'm going to submit to you today, is just like all of us, right? So I don't necessarily think that he was this overly critical thinker, although we're grateful for this episode that he has with Jesus because there's so much there for us to glean and to be encouraged and challenged by today. We do know that Thomas was from Galilee, as were the others, all the other disciples, except Judas. Judas was from Judea. And so all four Gospels mention that Thomas is a disciple, but only John, in the Gospel John, tells us more about Thomas. So we're going to spend most of our time in John today. Throughout church history, we've come to know him as what? Doubting Thomas. By the way, that's not his nickname. Uh, Jesus didn't give Thomas that nickname. But as we'll see today, I also don't think it's a fair description of this passionate disciple of Jesus. I mean, how would you like that name? <laughs> Doubting John. <laughs> Doubting Art. Doubting Tim. That, that's, not, that's not some nickname you want to have, certainly coming from Jesus and the early church. And that's not his nickname. Thank God for that. In the Gospel, John Thomas first shows up in chapter 11 when Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to wake up his good friend Lazarus. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with the Gospels. That's kind of funny, right? Because Lazarus is dead. <laughs> he's not sleeping. He's dead. But Jesus says he's going to wake up his good friend Lazarus. And they were good friends. He spent a lot of time with Lazarus and Mary and Martha in the little village of Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to the vicinity of Jerusalem, headed that direction. The disciples know Jesus is not liked by many of the religious elite there. And so a miracle, certainly raising someone from the dead, which the disciples are kind of picking up on, this is what Jesus means, would certainly spell trouble for Jesus. And Thomas, he knows this. John tells us in chapter 11, verse 12 through 16, that Thomas speaks up. And in verse 16, it says, Thomas, nickname, here's his nickname, the twin, we'll come back to that, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. Does that sound like a doubter? <laughs> a guy who deserves the nickname? Doubting Thomas? Not hardly. Listen to this. Let's go to and die with Jesus. You see, like Simon Peter, Thomas says he's willing to die with Jesus. However, just as the other disciples fled at Jesus' rest, we will see Thomas does this as well. They all did, right? But according to church tradition, after being empowered by the Holy Spirit, so we're talking post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, Thomas will eventually travel to India, preach the gospel there for 10 years, and die a martyr by being speared to death. So this guy is a serious disciple of Jesus. And so despite his doubts and his lack of courage, later on in John's gospel account, we need to recognize that, that Thomas is first shown to be a passionate follower of Jesus, and that he's the only one who speaks up. In John chapter 11, with a public confession that he is willing to follow Jesus to the death. And notice, as I said, John uh, calls Thomas the twin. His nickname is the twin. And as I said, Jesus must like nicknames, right? What's your nickname? You ever talk to Jesus about that? I haven't. I think I'm going to do that after today. What do you call me? <laughs> John is the only one who gives him this nickname. The only one. Hey, just, just uh, plug in a name. 
uh, plug in Thomas, take in Bible Gateway. I use that often. Plug in Thomas and watch all the references that come up to Thomas in the Gospels. The only place that we see this is in John. While some have wildly speculated about that. I mean, if you just Google this, folks, you've got to be careful what pops up when you just Google something for a variety of reasons. But some people say, this is the twin brother of Jesus. Oh, baloney. All that comes from the Gnostic Gospels, which came centuries after the New Testament and was denounced as heretical. And so this is not what I think John is trying to tell us. Rather, it's a literary device, I think, for the reader or for the hearer in the original context. Thomas has a twin, and that twin is us. We are all Thomas now. So let's keep all of this in mind as we read our main passage for today. If you have your Bible, would you open up to John chapter 20? John chapter 20, verse 19 through 29. I just want to read this straight through, and then we're going to come back and walk through it verse by verse. John chapter 20, verse 19 through 29. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. To get the blood flowing again and wake us up, would you stand with me? For the reading of the scriptures. Let's do that. John chapter 20 verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the risen Lord. Again he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Jesus has given them his authority. Verse 24, one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Thomas, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. Believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, as sons of the Enlightenment and daughters of modernity, I think we can all appreciate the story of Thomas. I'm grateful that it's in there. It's in the gospel. Because like Thomas, we too want empirical evidence, don't we? We're kind of wired for that in our culture today. We want good rational reasons for believing that something is worth believing. And that's understandable. We should also remember that we've all been heavily influenced, as I said, by the Enlightenment, which began, if you don't know, in the 17th century, early 17th century. And what this movement worldview did in the West is, for the first time in history, pull science, that is, observation of the physical world, apart from theology, religion, and spiritual matters. Going all the way back to the Greek philosophers, some of who were the first scientists, uh, they were holding all of these things together, what we would call science and theology, religion, philosophy, spiritual matters. And so by ripping this apart, as a result, matters of faith, you see, for, for that way of thinking, have nothing much to do with logic, reason, and rational thinking. We don't really even think about it or question this anymore. It's just the water that we swim in because we've been thinking this way for so long. And so mystery and faith uh, isn't just unnecessary in this worldview. It's actually dangerous. 
wishful thinking drummed up by the primitive, naive, and uneducated. And we should be extremely careful uh, that we don't have this worldview overcome, overtake uh, the New Testament worldview. And so I've got to immerse ourselves into that story and not the story of society and culture. Of course, we, unlike ancient Jews, seem to be unaware that there are plenty of things upon which we base our lives continually upon which can't be proven. For example, how do you prove objective morals and values? How do you prove that we all have inherent worth? Right? And especially if it's your truth and my truth, there's no such thing as the truth. Who are you to tell me what is and isn't valuable? There's nothing objective. If there's nothing that's been given to us by a great moral lawgiver. So how do you prove it? How do you prove that God created the world and will one day redeem it if all you have is just science? Or how do you prove historical claims or historical people? Any historical person. Well, their name is in a document. Yeah, well, Jesus' name is in plenty of historical documents too, but people still find plenty of reasons to say he didn't exist. So what's going on here? How do we, how do we respond to this? I mean, can you really think about it? Can you really prove, prove anything? I mean, how do you know that you're even really here this morning? You know, this has been a serious topic of, of philosophy generations, starting generations ago. The discussion of, of human existence and what is reality. Maybe like Plato's cave, we're just all part of the matrix. or some cosmic simulation by a sadistic creator. Uh, people have argued and debated this nature of reality for thousands of years. My point is this. For folks like Thomas in first century Palestine, I don't think these disciples needed proof in quite the same way that some skeptics demand it today. Because when it comes to the supernatural and spiritual matters, we are far more skeptical and I would say even arrogant about what we think we know and understand than first century Jews. I've said this phrase a lot, and I'm saying it because I wanted to get stuck in your vocabulary. It's chronological snobbery. Really, to, to think we know so much more uh, than those ancient primitive people did. We know so much more than the way the ethics of the New Testament was founded and all their beliefs. Folks, give me a break. Let's have a little bit more humility. Let's have a little bit more reverence an appreciation for what God is doing in the scriptures. You see, they didn't believe in scientism. That is that science answers all of the big questions that are important about the universe and give us all of truth. Science is important, but it can't do that. It can't. Any more than just philosophy can do that. That's because they, the first century disciples, along with the Greek philosophers, were far more accepting of mystery and apt to believe that the God who made the universe can do plenty of things that we can't understand. Nor will we ever understand as finite beings created by the infinite God. So for them, I submit that the resurrection of Jesus was more of a theological problem. Messiahs, they thought, don't die. But yet Jesus did. They don't die, they don't rise again, and the resurrection is supposed to be a future event. They weren't expecting this in the middle of human history. It was supposed to be at the end of the world. And here it is, happening. Behind locked doors, Jesus appears to them, risen from the dead. Like his old self, but something radically new and transformed. So this is more than just a metaphysical problem. For them, it had more to do with their dashed hopes, you see, and their expectations, and what it meant that Jesus was raised, and then it was a question of God's power. But nevertheless, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. The resurrection of Jesus was an enormous challenge for the minds of the 11 disciples in the first century as much as it is for us today. No doubt the resurrection of Jesus defies everything we've ever known about truth and reality and life and death and so forth. So let's keep that in mind as we now go verse by verse through John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Let's consider what was really going on with Thomas and what lessons we can learn from his story. Look at verse 24 again. 
One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, we said, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. Now, why was Thomas not with the other disciples? This is one of those uh, bits of information that the authors of the Gospels don't tell us. And sometimes we, we wonder, like, why don't you tell us that? Uh, does, it, does it really matter? The point is that he wasn't there. I mean, we could probably fill in the blanks, right? We don't know. Maybe he was sad. Maybe he was angry that Jesus had died and it was all over. And he was more, uh, maybe he was more introverted. And he wanted to grieve alone. Maybe he was embarrassed that he fled like most of the other disciples. After such a, a strong uh, commitment to Jesus and being adamant that he was willing to die with Jesus. He just hits the bottom hard. Maybe he wanted to sleep in for a change. Right? Maybe he had a, a marathon to run. <laughs> Maybe his kids had soccer practice or baseball practice. Where was Thomas? Fill in the blank. Where are people today when the Lord is moving? Fill in the blank. Remember, this is the same guy who said, let us go with Jesus to Jerusalem, that we'll die with him. We can die with him. I'll die with him. So this shouldn't be too surprising, I suppose. The most committed people often fall the hardest, don't they? You've seen this before, I think. Maybe it's happened to you or you've witnessed it. Enthusiastic, committed, radical followers fall into cynicism, into doubt and disillusionment, even disbelief after they've been hurt. All of us have probably experienced this on some level or another, where we felt betrayed, disappointed, duped, or feel that we were misled. Folks, that's Thomas. That's Thomas. And we are his twin. Also, I think John may want us to see something here. Just as Luke did with the two, remember those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember those, those folks? They were leaving Jerusalem. Show's over. Jesus is dead. Going back to life as it was. And Jesus catches up with them. Meets with them. Talks about the scriptures with them. Unveils the scriptures. Reveals the scriptures to them. Goes to their house. Sits down. Breaks bread. Their eyes are opened. Right? You remember that? You remember this? I think, I think uh, just as Luke did with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus... That is this, I think this has happened. When you do not stay close and connected with the Lord's people, you will miss things. You will miss things. If you leave or you're not staying close to the body of Christ, you will miss experiences that God may want to use to help you grow and build your faith. And that's what happened to Thomas. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into his side. See, this scene that Thomas missed, which we read earlier, was also the same scene that Luke said that the two disciples from Emmaus had witnessed as well. You remember after they had experienced that with Jesus, they run back to Jerusalem. As they are telling the disciples, Jesus appears. <laughs> right? So that's what's happening. Thomas wasn't there. He missed that. And so it's understandable that he's having a hard time believing. I mean, we can certainly sympathize with Thomas, but still here are ten of his friends and other disciples of Jesus. They're all telling him that Jesus is alive, but he doesn't believe it. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? I mean, what's the biggest hurdle here? Is it his own pain and anger or that Jesus is alive? You say, well, anger? Why anger? You've said that a couple of times. What do you mean? Well, literally in the Greek, Thomas says, unless I can literally forcefully stick my finger in his nail holes and plunge my hand into his side, I will never, ever believe. That is, in the Greek, we're picking up on the emotion that is behind Thomas' his, his sentiments and what he is saying here. There's a double negative there. I will never, ever believe. Folks, this guy's upset. He's upset. So you get in the picture. He's a smart guy. He won't be bamboozled. He, he, he wants to see just as they saw for sure. But I also think he's having a hard time with it. He believed before. Look what that got him. And now they're saying that Jesus appeared the one time he wasn't with them, 
Well, that has to be even more upsetting. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, there's Jesus. Peace be with you. Notice that Thomas, uh, the one who we've, as I said, unfortunately called Doubting Thomas, he remained with the disciples. Did you catch that? And why is that significant? It's significant because he didn't curse them and leave. Forget you guys. I don't need any of this. I'm gone. I'm out of here. He didn't leave uh, all, all angry in this state. He doubted, but he stayed. He was hurt, but he stayed. He was angry, but he stayed. Folks, say it with me. Thomas stayed. Thomas stayed. He didn't leave or miss another gathering. Because who knows? Jesus might choose to show up that time he's not there. And he doesn't want to miss what he's missed before. And this time, he doesn't. John says, though the doors were locked, there's Jesus standing among them. Peace be with you. Of course Jesus would say this. I mean, I would be freaking out with this. Verse 27, and he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound of my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. You see, look at this. Jesus goes straight for Thomas. Did you, did you catch that? He's saying, how's it going, guys? How you been since I last saw you in my resurrected state? He didn't say, peace be with you. And he goes, beeline for Thomas. Just as if Jesus had overheard Thomas before, Right? As he'd been listening in on the conversation a week earlier from behind the curtain of our physical and material realm. Folks, Jesus hears us. And he grants his request in order to restore and renew, even to boost Thomas's faith to the next level. Rodney Whitaker in the University Press New Testament commentary, he writes this. I love this quote. He says, faith throughout the gospel is depicted as progressive and growing. Think of this. It is renewed in the face of each new revelation of Jesus. The other disciples, they had moved on to the next stage in their faith, but Thomas has not been able to. To not move on when Jesus calls us to do so is to shift into reverse and move away. Both believing and unbelieving are dynamic, you see. We're either growing in one direction or the other. Whitaker says that Jesus is challenging Thomas to move toward belief. You think about that. How many times that we find our place, ourselves in a place, a similar place as Thomas. And, and it can be excruciating. It can be dark. It can, it can be uh, frustrating but folks, it's an opportunity. This is what we're seeing in the text. It's an opportunity to move on in our faith. Your eighth grade Sunday school faith is not going to sustain you into your 20s and your 30s and your 40s and so on. At some point, you have to grow. At some point, that flannel graph understanding of, of the Lord isn't going to cut it. And it isn't a time simply to throw up your hands and quit and abandon it all, it's, a, it's an opportunity to grow. Amen? Amen. And he writes, Whitaker goes on, he says, translated woodenly, there in verse 27, it reads this, stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. Again, I'm going to say it again, stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. And I think one important takeaway here that John wants to highlight is that what Thomas needed, you see, was his own personal encounter with the risen Jesus. Now, this is good. We need to stop looking at this as some kind of guilting and shaming, doubting Thomas. But rather see this as a gift from God to Thomas, something Jesus wanted to give him. He missed it the first time, but in God's grace, he came back to church and Jesus revealed himself. Thank the Lord for that. How many opportunities, some we will never even know of, that we've missed in hearing from the Lord and experiencing from the Lord because we quit, because we cut out too early, because we walked away. But Thomas, he did it once. He's not going to do it again. 
So that's a, good, that's a good takeaway for us, I think. Still today, we all need this in one form or another. In fact, we're, we're only able to pass through trials and overcome our seasons of doubt with a fresh experience of Jesus. It's not going to be enough for me to tell you about my experiences with Jesus or your mama to tell you about her experiences with Jesus or your grandma or somebody else. You need your own experience with Jesus. This is the truth, and we need these encounters to grow in our faith. We can't just live on experiences we had from 20 years ago. Jesus is calling us to new, fresh experiences with him so that we can graduate and progress in our faith as we learn and we experience more in life. And like Thomas, it's a good thing to ask God for them. It's a good thing to ask God and to wait patiently for his timing of that revelation. Oh, don't give up asking, church. I love this picture, and I've shown it here before. Look at this. This is by the Italian painter Caravaggio. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And I think it's really interesting that it was painted in the early dawn of the Enlightenment. So just look at that. Look at that. For all of you people wanting empirical evidence and all of you longing for evidence, just take in this picture. Isn't isn't the Lord so accommodating? You just think about what he did for Thomas. He didn't have to do that. But because he loved Thomas, just as he loves you, and he loves me, his twin. You see, Jesus can still be accommodating if we will show up. I, 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 I like to put it this way, and I actually stole this from an old professor of mine. Um, you got to give the Holy Spirit more to work with sometime. I mean, some, some people wonder why they're not experiencing God, but they don't give the Holy Spirit anything to work with. They listen to music that drags them away from God. They watch things that send them into deep depression and into a dark chasm and the dark night of the soul. They're continually consuming media that isn't pointing or telling us the gospel narrative. They're missing opportunities in worship. And yet you wonder why you're not closer to God. We have to give this some serious thought. It's not meant to guilt us and shame us, but it's to say, look at the lesson that's being taught here. Thomas missed, but he wasn't going to miss again. He realized what's at stake. He realized that he couldn't afford to miss another opportunity to experience the resurrected Jesus. If we'll give him something to work with, church, and not isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off from his avenues of grace, ways he wants to bless us, life can take a turn pretty suddenly and in ways where light comes in and we're full of hope and promise for the future. You know, doubt doesn't have to be a disaster. Doubts are a part of faith. Doubts are a part of faith. I want you to hear me say that this morning. Doubts are part of faith. In fact, you can't have real faith without doubts. If you're not doubting, you don't have faith. Because faith is all about trust when you don't have all the answers and you don't know how all the puzzle pieces fit. Doubts are part of faith. Truthfully, you can't do much of anything without doubt as a constant companion, if you think about it. And we need to hear this. There's a difference, though, between honest doubts and making excuses for not believing and following Jesus. I think a lot of people sometimes use that as a cover. It's true that some people just don't want to let go of their anger. They don't want to let go of their pride and their bitterness and their pain. They really just don't want to be responsible for their own mistakes, the part that they've played in it, and their healing. I think that's a real thing that we should acknowledge. And we should also be honest that a lot of people just don't want to be responsible for the truth and repent or change. And so having doubts or being agnostic can be a way of avoiding repentance and avoiding obedience and submitting to the Lord. So it's not so much about Christian theology for some folks. It is about refusing to humble yourself and relinquish control to God. But only you and the Lord can know that. So sometimes it's not really about the evidence. It's about not wanting to surrender to Christ. And and again, I, I do want to recognize this. Sometimes it is about the evidence. And we want to believe, but we need some good reasons for believing. And that's great. 
That's great, and I think you should do that. I said it before many times here at Grantham. I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't think there were sufficient reasons to believe and put your faith in Christ, and specifically that all evidence points to the tomb being empty because Jesus walked out of it. And if I didn't think there were good reasons for that, I wouldn't believe it. But I think that there is. But it still requires faith. It still requires faith. But if it's certainty that we want, if it's certainty that we want, we'll never get it. We'll never get it. Because it's not about arriving at a place of certainty. No, not at all. And I like what Greg Boyd says here in his book on doubt. I've shown you this quote before as well. He said, while the certainty-seeking model of faith is psychological in nature, that is, you know, making yourself sure mentally. I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. What is that? Is that the Wizard of Oz? What is that? Yeah. Is it? No, it, it's not about psychological certainty. But that's often the way people think of it. But rather, he says, the biblical concept is covenantal. That is, while the former is focused on a person's mental state, the latter is focused on how a person demonstrates a commitment by how they live. Think about it this way. We'll, we'll liken it to uh, one of the remaining examples of covenant in our culture, uh, although it's quickly fading. And that is this. Covenantal, think of covenantal faith is trust built upon some evidence, but it still requires belief in mystery and the unknown. And here's the example. Being married to your spouse, how do you know they love you? How do, they, how do you know they love you? How do, how do you know they won't cheat on you at some point? How do you know they won't deny their faith at some point and turn out to be a monster? Right? You don't. You don't. You take the evidence that you see when you're first getting married. I mean, how many of you really stressed about that like me when you were first getting married? You just really just mentally, you were all in knots and in your stomach, right? Am I, am I doing the right thing? Is this going to work out, right? But ultimately, what do you got to do? You got to have faith. You got to trust. Now, I know the, the analogy breaks down here because some people do become monsters. But folks, we're talking about the God of the universe. We're talking about the God that's been revealed in Jesus who said he will never leave us nor forsake us. So the scripture says, never changes. Always the same. We'll remain faithful to the end. And so think of faith that way. It, it, is, it is trust without knowing everything. But listen and think about the one in whom we're calling us to trust. You see, we, we feel most secure and comforted in this kind of covenantal faith when it is alive and active. When it is alive and it is active. That's when our faith is strengthened. That's when it grows and it leaves a trail of God moments behind us that we can turn, we can stop and look and say, I know that I know. Because I can look back and see God's work in my life. Folks, I have doubts. I, I, I'm at the point, I don't doubt the existence of God. The, the times where I doubt, and it's kind of like the psalmist in Psalm chapter 73. Like he, he, he said, surely the, the God of Israel is good. But my feet almost slipped. Remember this chapter? And he goes on and says, Why is it that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And you could just fill in anything there, right? I believe in God. That's not the problem. I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. That's not the problem for me. For me, personally, it is, it is having to wait on God. God seems so patient that evil gets the upper hand. Do you ever feel that way? Is it just me? Why is it that sometimes it seems like the darkness is stronger than the light? So, so what do you do with that? Well, you just got to keep coming back, aligning your heart and your experience in your mind. You see, you can believe something mentally, but your experience is telling you something different. And there are times where we're going to just have to trust what the scriptures say and what Jesus has shown us and align our heart with our mind. We have to choose what reality, every day, we have to choose what reality we're going to live in. And this takes a, a conscious, intentional effort. So I get it. I can relate to Thomas. I can relate to the, the psalmist. I'm doubting, but believing in God. Thomas did that. He sure, sure he had doubts. He still showed up. He had doubts, but he was living as a person of faith. He didn't just follow Jesus with his mind. He also followed Jesus with his heart. 
And once again, think about it. He was with the disciples a week later, and this ought to speak to us this morning. Doubts will come, but we should work through those doubts like we would challenges in a relationship. We don't abandon faith when it gets hard. We don't get divorced because we're going through tough times. Or we're not feeling the love anymore. You see, there's something covenantal there. It's something that transcends what we feel. It transcends experience. We're talking about something eternal. So, so doubts will come, but we press on. We don't abandon faith when it gets hard. We press on with those questions. We name them. We speak those doubts out loud. Lord, this is what I'm thinking. <laughs> Lord, this is how I feel. How long, oh Lord? As Pastor Melissa said earlier in the prayer, that's, that's from the Psalms. Oh, the Psalms have so much for us as a resource. Honest, honest, gritty faith. Not shine away from these kinds of things, but acknowledging them. Because that's how faith grows. So we press on and we see and we strive to see the Lord afresh to increase our faith. That's what Thomas did. And he received his own personal encounter and experience with the risen Jesus. Lastly, uh, look at the last two verses here and how Thomas responded. Thomas said... Now, here's the thing. We, we don't know, and I know the painting showed this, but we don't know if Thomas actually did touch Jesus. It doesn't say. Do, do you see that? Go back and look. It doesn't say. What we know is Thomas saw enough. Thomas experienced enough to say this. My Lord and my God. Brothers and sisters, Thomas confesses what no other disciple had before in this way. You see, Thomas, according to John, is the first to recognize Jesus as God in the flesh here in his resurrected state. Which is climactic in John's gospel when you think back and consider where his gospel began. John chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. John told us the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And here we go, John chapter 20, verse 28. Now we do, my Lord, my God. From Thomas, the one who doubted. You see, now all this has changed. Thomas has seen God, and he knows it. So don't miss this. Jesus invites Thomas to catch up with the other disciples in their new stage of faith. And what does Thomas do? He shoots past them. He shoots past them and heads to the top of his class. Folks, your, your greatest moment of darkness could be the very thing that you need to propel your faith forward and above your circumstances. But you will not know it if you quit and you give up. You will not know it if you walk away from the Lord. Don't do it. Let's learn from Thomas. Let's learn from this disciple who doubted but believed. Verse 29, Jesus told him, listen to this beatitude, this blessing. Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Folks, Jesus isn't scolding Thomas. But clearly he does skip the commendation. <laughs> and he thinks ahead to all those who will come after Thomas, his other twin, you and me. You see, John includes these words of Jesus, this beatitude, just like those in Matthew 5. For all those who will come after these, these first disciples and their experiences of the risen Jesus. He's saying to us, there's a great blessing for those who can take the evidence that they do have short of seeing and touching the risen body of Jesus, and still believe. That another, another way of putting that is Jesus sees the hurdle. He, he understands. He looks into future generations, and he knows this is, this is tough. This isn't going to be easy. But he says, blessed are those who do. Blessed are those who will. Not everybody's going to be afforded what you're afforded, Thomas. Not everybody's going to be afforded that. Let's be clear, this sort of signs and wonders that we often seek, as Thomas did, aren't rejected here. But it's important to understand that they will not always be available for us. Even when they are, as we can see 
throughout the Gospels. They, they don't in and of themselves guarantee faith in Christ. I, I have to keep reminding me, myself of this. I'll be honest with you folks. There's sometimes I lie awake at night in bed, and i just like, Jesus, could you just, could you just show up at the end of my bed? That'd be great. I, I would just like to physically be in your presence. Would that be all right? Could you just do that for me? Okay, not tonight. All right. <laughs> we'll try again later. It's okay. And if anything, look at it this way. It proves that there is a real connection. And that we physically long to be with Jesus. And I just have to trust him that he knows what he's doing. I have to trust him that, he, that, that uh, there's a reason why he, he appeared to the, that Muslim over in the Middle East who are frequently having these kinds of visions of the resurrected Jesus, and not to me. I don't know. I don't know why. I just have to trust the Lord. Anyways, it's important to understand that they're not always going to be available. And even when they are, we can see that it, it doesn't guarantee faith. We often think they will, don't we? We, we think they will, but how often do we see people today denying things that are just blatant, right? Even with science, right? With facts. <laughs> just denying things that are blatant. But we somehow think that seeing something miraculous or supernatural will change it all. There's no guarantee of that. We see that in the New Testament. And so Jesus invites us to believe on the evidence and light that we do have and receive the blessings that come from faith. I like this quote from author and pastor Brian Zahn. He says, Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. A confession, not an explanation. We will explain what we can. Don't miss that part. We're, we're not promoting anti-intellectualism here. We're not saying the evidence doesn't matter. We're not saying that, you know, you shouldn't investigate things. We will explain what we can, but we will always confess more than we can explain. Can you explain to me the virgin birth? Hmm? Anybody? No. Can you explain to me the Trinity? Anybody? No. <laughs> but we confess it. We confess it because we believe the Scriptures teach it. We believe Jesus himself teaches this, that God is three and one. Each time we confess the Apostles' Creed together, notice this is a confession. This is not an explanation. As a final reminder that doubt will always be present where faith is required, check out one of the last verses in Matthew's Gospel in case you forgot about it. His disciples saw the risen Jesus go up into heaven. Think about this. They saw, Jesus died. He was resurrected. Appeared many times. Over 500 people, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. And now he's, it, it appears like he's floating up into the clouds and disappears before them. And look what the Scripture says. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Think about it. Look what they saw. Look what they witnessed. But they doubted. They doubted. They worshiped, but they doubted. They continued to follow him. And all of them, except for one, except for John, died proving their faith in Jesus. My friends, this is New Testament faith. That's what we've been invited into this morning. So let us be challenged and encouraged and comforted with this final verse from 1 Peter 8 and 9. Peter said, you love him even though you've never seen him. And though you don't see him now, you trust him. That is, you have faith. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Amen and amen. Oh, let that sink in for you this morning. Before we close with some reflection questions, real quick, think about some of these lessons from Thomas's story. As I said, we are just like Thomas, aren't we? We are his twin. Let that minister to you this morning. We also see that faith, that his covenant trust, doesn't go against evidence and reason, but it does require us to go beyond it. Faith embraces mystery. It involves accepting realities beyond our knowing and comprehension. We don't just get to mark it out with a sharpie because it doesn't fit our modern worldview. We also see another lesson from Thomas that doubt is normal. It's part of the discipleship process. It's an opportunity for deepening our faith in God. So, as I said, be honest about your doubts. Don't deny them. And two, ask yourself, are they the real issue? Or might it be something else? Also, it tells us to stay with the church. 
Bring your questions and doubts. Bring them. Bring them. You know, I'd love to hear them more, actually. <laughs> I sometimes wonder as a pastor, what, what's going on with folks? I'm not hearing anything. Let's be honest about our doubts. Let's be honest about our questions. I'm wondering about this. What do I do with this? Don't suffer in isolation. Don't try to work it out on your own. Invite the community into that process. Amen? Don't give up or give in to your flesh and secular culture that seeks to lure you away from Christ and the church because you have doubts. Infrequent attendance and engagement with the body of Christ will forfeit divine opportunities. This is what we see in the text. And of course, Thomas is a saint and he's a sinner. Oh, how there's hope for us all. Amen. Hope for us all. A few questions here. Can you see yourself in Thomas? If so, how? How is God specifically speaking to you? What is the issue? Where's the rub? You lying awake at night in bed like me? Jesus, did you just, did you just show yourself? What are you thinking? Where are your doubts? Where are your questions? Number two, are, are you staying with the church? Are you moving toward belief? Remember, it's a dynamic. Moving toward it or away from it? Are you moving toward belief? Are you doing the things that make for belief? Are you get, what are you giving the Holy Spirit to work with and growing you through seasons of doubt and darkness? And lastly, number three, do you have questions or doubts? If so, how is the Spirit inviting you to deepen your faith in Christ? Respond to this message. Can I just invite us into a, a, a brief time of prayer? Would you just close your eyes with me? And, I, and I'm going to invite you to do something that maybe some of you have never done. Now, there's some of us in the room that are going to find that hard to believe because we do it all the time, maybe, express our doubts to God. But some of you, you may have never done that. And I just, I want you, in obedience to the scriptures here and, and, and following up with Thomas's story, following this example, would you just take a moment and express what you're feeling to God right now? Just do that. questions do you have? Where are you struggling? Where do you need Jesus to appear? Father, I know that we are all in different places on our journey. Some of us have been following you for years, some of us for a short period of time, but we hear the invitation this morning, the invitation to progress in our faith, to grow in our faith, to not see doubt and questions and the valley as a stopping place, but something to work through. Would you give us the strength to work through it this morning? God, we need you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.